Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Uh, uh, pleased to welcome a double guest um, episode. We've got Max Lyons here and uh, Nella Hadzik, who, who are both uh, union organizers. And they're going to tell us about, you know, the, the state of being a union organizer, what unions are, you know, about and uh, what that work entails and, uh, and uh, you know, so on and so forth. So uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. It's, uh, I'm sure it's another day in the trenches. So, uh, yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Maybe just to get us started off at, um, you know, you you guys, uh, uh, you know, you're in the trenches, and I would say like a pretty dark and also promising time for labor organizing. So, you know, maybe starting with you, Max, can you tell us, like, give, give us a sort of state of play of you know kind of union organizing in 2019 how that's how that's going um you know i don't think there's been a more exciting time um certainly in my organizing career or like lifetime to be either an organizer or a worker who wants to start a union i mean the level of energy the number of sort of militant actions that workers are taking uh, the number of workers who are organizing, the number of young people in all sorts of different fields who are interested in fighting for collective power, um, I don't think has ever been larger, um, which is kind of ironic because like in a larger political sense, we've, you know, uh, haven't seen a more uh, hostile, you know, administration towards organizing also in my lifetime. Well, no, I was born during the Reagan administration, so maybe that's not true. But, you know. Um, but you were little. But I was little. Um, but, yeah, I mean, even, you know, I started organizing about seven years ago. And, you know, if I went back in time and told my past self that, you know, uh, Teen Vogue would be publishing articles about, like, union busters, I would, you know, uh, I would not believe my future self. So, um <laughs> So, you know, things are dire, but also the level of excitement and the level of energy out there, I think, is really good. And how about you, Nella? What's your what's yeah. your read on things? I mean, I agree with Max. I have been feeling really energized this past year, 2019. Um, well, I guess starting in the last few years, <clears throat> something that I'm particularly excited about are is the the wave of union organizing happening in journalism. And I think we're starting to see that pay off in a huge way um, with Google organizing that's going on now. The fact that uh, that's being covered, there's like an article in the New York Times saying Google hired a union busting firm um, to deal with the organizing that's going on there. And just overall seeing more references to union busting, which has been so in the background of the work that Max and I do. It's like the biggest secret that's not really a secret. People that attempt to organize know that something happens, but it's just not talked about uh, so openly. And I think for us professionally, maybe we haven't publicized it as much because there's a sense of maybe then you'll scare workers out of organizing if you like talk up what's going to happen. Um, 
And I think it's just all unfolding in a really excellent way um, that we're seeing nonprofits organize. Um, the I know Max has heard me talk about this a lot in the last couple of weeks, but the organizing that's happening in the arts, uh, the wage transparency, transparency sheet is just so huge um, that people are starting to talk about wages in an industry where it's been, you know, impolite to talk about money. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling really stoked about everything that's going on. That's awesome. And I know we're going to get a lot into kind of the tactics and strategies on both sides and, and how kind of the affective emotions, um, come into play, but it, you know, it's, it's easy, I think, to, to just imagine that, uh, union organizing is just like a one-sided thing where you just have to just do the thing and talk to the people and maybe they have resistance, but you don't picture kind of the battle with the active forces that have, you know, paid people lots of money to actively try to break that up and frustrate that. And all that goes into, to that battle. Uh, you just usually, at least in my mind, typically think of the organizers and the people to be organized. You forget, right, about kind of the evil opposition. Is that true? It's like <laughs> I, I, I like think about it all the time that it's always right. surprising to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't yeah. know about you, but this is one of the first times I've seen headlines like Google hires union busters. Like, I, I don't know about you guys do this all the time. Maybe you, you're more attuned to the news, right? But this seems like it's been in the news a lot lately, and I don't remember seeing those terms ever in the news. Well, with us, it's like, like we when we're talking to a colleague who's like doing a new organizing drive, and it's just like, oh, did they bring the busters in yet? You know, it's just like a matter of course. We know it's going to happen, and like we know who they are. It's like it's like almost like baseball cards or something. It's like, oh, is it you know? you know, uh, ILR, was it Yesin, <laughs> was it the Perenos, you know, was it all these like different do, people? Do, do, do you have a deck of cards like they had for Saddam and all the people in the Iraq <laughs> war? Do you have like the union buster deck of cards? Cause that would be cool. No, but there That's is like an idea. alert. That's a tactic. Yeah. I mean, but there's an alert that you get because, you know, uh, they have to file paperwork when they hire one, um, which isn't totally consistent. Um, but yeah, I you know when when they come in, you know they came in, and it's like you get experience or people you know get experience fighting particular ones, and they have you know certain flavors to them. Like it's always a bit of the same uh, stuff, but there you know there's different reputations that they have. You know, um, so I don't know, maybe like a something out of a Marvel thing, which I don't even like, but <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, but to see. You know, I guess my point is like we're so familiar with them and it's like engaging with them as part of this process is such a given um, that we kind of take it for granted, you know? Um, yeah. So to see that whole industry, the union avoidance industry, getting a little bit of light shine, uh, shown on it is um, is really uh, it's, it's wonderful to see. Yeah. And um <clears throat> Maybe a good a good uh, place to dive into that, you know, because like companies are just as fanatically anti-union, you know, as they've always been like this. This is viewed as like a key sort of ideological struggle, you know, like the capitalist must control the firm. Even, you know, I don't care about productivity or like profits or anything else. The most important thing is being in charge. Um, but back in the day. 
you know, they would just shoot you, you know, you get the, the police, which were basically just like the handmaidens of capital back in, you know, like the, the Haymarket, uh, uh, affair, riot, whatever massacre, um, or, uh, you know, the, the Ludlow massacre in, in Colorado. And, uh, nowadays, you know, like Google didn't hire a bunch of like machine gun wielding like goons, or at least not yet, uh, to just like shoot everyone who, who protests. So like, how does that work nowadays to, you know, what sort of tactics do they use? I mean, we were talking about how to talk about this and like, like this is a co- we have a conversation with every single worker that we talk to in an organizing drive that like directly addresses this. So one thought we had was just to sort of like reproduce that a little bit. Right. Yeah. Go for it. Say I'm a, say I want to organize my workplace. Okay. What, what do I need to know? So let's say, yeah, uh, you, you want to organize, uh, your workplace, which is a journalistic workplace. Um, and you know, this, part of the conversation would come after we've like figured out why you want to organize and like what the real things you want to fix and like talked about how, you know, you can have a plan with your colleagues to actually address those things because when you stand together, you have power. Right. Uh, for me at that point in the, in the conversation, I usually just ask like, what do you think your boss is going to do when they find out that you're doing this? Yeah. So what would your boss do if they found out that you you guys were organizing? You know, honestly, I don't know. There's there's been a lot of well, for no, for one thing, the week just got bought by a British hedge fund. So I I I know very little about them other than it's not Alden Global Capital. Hmm. And they seem to be more about like buy and hold type of investments. Um my direct boss, honestly, I'm not really sure. I think there there would be like maybe a 50-50 chance that that he would say all right fine the and and then you know in the negotiations I'm sure would would you know resist things here and there um but then I, people can surprise you I suppose so I I just I wouldn't uh you know my my job I mean one reason the the the, the my job is not organized is because like it is quite cushy Mm -hmm. um and and you and there is that faint uh you know the kind of like well i don't maybe don't deserve it or there's certainly not the pressure Mm -hmm. you know where i'm like not being treated like crap 24 hours a day um but do you think your boss would be pleased or displeased if he heard there was like a an an organizing drive happening i'm sure the owners would not be pleased yeah um my direct boss maybe he would side with the you know, for fear of, of being sold for parts or something, but but I'm sure that the the hedge fund guys would not. Mm. That that's a, you know, I'm sure that takes a little bit of you know five ten percent or whatever off your sale price right there. Mm-hmm. Get a bunch of unruly organized people who want to preserve the organ preserve the thing as a going concern. You know? Well, I mean, I think you and your colleagues also want to preserve the thing as a going concern. No, you guys exa- want to keep your jobs too, right? It, no, exactly. I mean, that's the point. Like, then you can't sell it to you, that forecloses the option of selling it to Alden Global Capital and just mm-hmm. be torn to shreds. That's right. Uh, you guys want a more sustainable place to practice your craft. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that would be. I've literally thought about doing this. Um, um, I've I've been talking to some folks, but uh, 
that would be my number one reason for organizing. Not for any, like I'm not making enough money or whatever, but that I worry that the thing will be destroyed despite the fact that it is a profitable journalistic enterprise, mm-hmm. one of the very few. And like, that would just be such a damn shame, mm-hmm. you know, even aside from my job. It's like, for God's sakes, we don't have many of them left. You know, and we. Am I the only one that feels like this is actually happening right now? Like, this is not. <laughs> this, yeah, this yeah. Is, this is, I had that thought. Like maybe you want to take this, yeah, off the podcast. Yeah. Well, in any case, you know, um, at this point I would say, well, like, you know, uh, yeah, that's why most people want to organize is to make their their lives and their jobs better. Yeah. But unfortunately, uh, what we find in, you know, uh, almost every single case is that when employers find out that their employees are talking about uh, forming a union, the first thing they do is call an anti-union consultant. Yeah. Um, and these are companies that, you know, specialize in what they call union avoidance. Um, they charge uh, an extraordinary amount of money. Uh, the base rate is $3,000 per person per day plus expenses. Uh, and their job is to convince you and all your colleagues that um, doing something that's essentially in your self-interest uh, is, is a bad, no good, terrible thing. Um the good news is that they do the same thing almost every single time. Um, and so, you know, if you were a worker, I'd uh, now take this time to sort of walk through what uh, what their usual, um, you know. Um, Talking points are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know, Nella, you want to go through some of those? Yeah. Inoculate us. We need to be inoculated. Yeah. I think, you know, both Max and I work in with healthcare workers. So maybe a few of those are uh, industry specific. Um, the what we hear the most are just concerns and fears around dues. Like all of a sudden the company cares how you're going to spend your money and they like won't stop talking about the 60 or 80 bucks a month that you're going to be paying in union dues. And that's just really like that gets to the root of um, the union being an outside thing that you're essentially paying a fee for service. And then like, what's this service worth? And there are no guarantees. The second thing, which especially is effective. I mean, I think it would be effective for all sorts of workers, but there's another component to strikes with healthcare workers. Like the idea of uh, leaving your patients to go on strike is a, a really tough thing to consider uh, for nurses that we work with. You know, it's like, oh, I'm all for it, but the idea of abandoning my patients, like, I right. think there's like a moral, Which, ethical. I mean, we, we see the same kind of thing in education, right? Where you're going right. to leave the students stranded. Yep. These poor kids need to be taught. What do you do? You know, and they use, they leverage as they so often do when they also devalue the labor done for the most important care work, right? And, and yep. teaching. They say you don't need money because you're doing it for, for love. And, and and they use every single sentimental human thing we have against us, right, as leverage to make us do what they want, which is the most perverse thing I can think of. Yeah. Um, then, then they uh, use the fear that people have of really any kind of change, this kind of uncertainty of if I go for this, like it all sounds good. But if I go for this uh, union thing, there are no guarantees. They'll say that, 
And that one particularly gets to me because it sounds accurate. Like that sounds like a truism, <laughs> you know, yeah. like there are no guarantees. Like that sounds like something that a smart person would think. Right. <laughs> um, so you're like, yeah, there are no guarantees. Like, I just uh, don't know. They're right about that. But really there's a hundred percent guarantee that if you form a union, your employer is now obligated to negotiate with you legally. Nice. Like whether or not they do it and how they do it and when they do it, that's all a matter of like strategy and the campaign that we run. But it is absolutely certain that when you unionize under our current structure of labor laws, your employer has an obligation to negotiate with you and you are no longer an at-will employee. Wow. Yeah. Um, that brings up another question actually I had, which is the state of the state of labor law. Uh, and you know, this is all based on like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but like the 1935 national labor relations act. Right. And I think there was one in 48 too, but you know, I'm not <laughs> a super nerd about it, but yeah. <laughs> a- anyway, like old laws yeah. and, and, and laws, which, which like, <clears throat> again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but like the basic model of organizing is, uh, workplace to workplace, Right. So, you know, you got to go into an individual like business or factory or whatever. Single site presumption. Is, yeah. I think the legal term. For and it. you got to do these, you know, uh, individual drives, you know, in each place, which makes it the, or the things much more dispersed, especially now that we don't have like mass factories where there are like 50,000 people working in this one factory or whatever. Um you know, whereas in, uh, you know, a lot of European countries, you've got like sectoral bargaining where you just be like, OK, restaurants, uh, everybody's, you know, we're going to take all the restaurant employers and all the restaurant unions and you come together and you you do a sector wide bargaining. And then that's just extended across the entire population of of restaurant workers. Um, and so, you know, do you think that the that like the labor law framework needs to be like updated and if so you know what would you do to uh you know kind of bring it into the 21st century oh absolutely i mean um as for updating it i think that's a that's a heavy lift on uh the political level um you know uh at the very least you know like look uh, there was a moment in the early Obama administration where at the very least we could have passed uh car check neutrality, which would have put me and Nella more or less out of a job because it would have made uh, organizing drives way easier by saying like, you don't have to have right now we have to go through this election process, which just a couple days ago got much more cumbersome because of uh, new regulations from the Trump appointed uh, national labor relations board. Um, you know, under a card check neutrality agreement, it's very simple. If half the workers sign a card and say they want to be in a union, they have the union and the employer would be, uh, obliged to negotiate with them. And there was a window in which we could have gotten it, um, you know, back in 2009 or whatever. Uh, and you know, um, the democratic party chose not to do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, that at the top of my head would be the simplest thing we could do. And that's usually the answer. I mean, if we really wanted to fantasize, like, yeah, I would love to have sectoral bargaining. I would love to have a state that supported workers agency and, you know, democratic will to make real changes. Um, 
But, you know, while I'm, you know, I think there's never been a more exciting time to organize, that seems very far away. <laughs> um, so I, like, I can't even, it's, you know, almost beyond my imagination to think about that. Yeah, you you would need, uh, uh, I mean, I, I remember the history of getting, what was it, Section 7A or whatever into the National Industrial Recovery Act, which was even with gigantic Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate, getting that through the Senate was just a bruising political battle. And FDR, you know, was behind it, like beating people with a stick. And even then, you know, it was like almost didn't make it. Um, and that that if I'm if I remember correctly, it, it like protected people's right to organize and banned yellow dog contracts which what's a yellow dog contract this is a that was an old thing where where like they're kind of bringing this back almost but it said it was like when you get a job you had to sign a contract that said i will not join a union sort of like non-compete agreements now except it was just like deliberate like for the jimmy john sandwich workers <laughs> yeah exactly um and that was you know that was super common in mm. the like lochner doctrine era uh, you know, from like the 1890s to the, uh, uh, you know, 1932, basically. Mm. Um, and that, you know, that was just banned. Uh, but well, I mean, one thing that I've heard of exists in a couple places, like, you know, so companies hire these like, uh, you know, union busters to come in. They literally do it almost every time. That's why we've seen it, you know, uh, at Google, we see it in every campaign we work on. You know, uh, just tax them. You know, I, you yeah. know, if you can't ban them outright, they cost three thousand bucks a day per person at least. Double it, you know, because they show time after time that they're going to do it. Because in the employers, uh, from the employer's point of view, it is worth spending, you know, millions of dollars. Um, you know, if it means that they're going to beat the workers, right? And, yeah. And unfortunately, in in case after case, if you don't have workers who are well prepared to withstand the like uh, nonstop, you know, um, emotional onslaught of what um, the the anti union campaign is going to be, uh, you know, they they vote down the union, um, and so. At the very least, and I think this is something that's probably achievable, at least in some of the more, um, you know, um, progressive cities where you have like radicals and socialists running for office, like running a city ordinance that says like, okay, if you're going to hire a union buster, you have to register. And if you're going to register, we're going to tax you 100% on what you pay them. You know, um, yeah. that, that would be awesome. I would love that. I wanted to add something on the NLRA. Yeah. Uh, the National Labor Relations Act, which was enacted in 1935. To me, the thing that's striking about it is in the preamble or the beginning part of the act, there is this fairly strongly worded part about like recognizing that there is unequal bargaining power between the employer, you know, and the workers, and that they're really on opposite sides and have opposite interests. We're enacting this law um, to make it to make workers be able to organize, join collectively, work together, negotiate with their employers, and it's going to be good for everybody. Like that's yeah. I mean, how even the Adam law was Smith written. thought that, right? Even Adam Smith had that same notion, right? 
Yeah. So, so to me, like when you're asking about like, you know, should we reconfigure this law or throw it out, like start fresh, do something different. Um, like when I, when I think about that writing and the spirit, you know, in that, like saying it very clearly, you know, your boss has all the power, um, you don't, and it's going to benefit you to organize. And here is a set of laws that will help you do that. Um, it's, it's really like the interpretation of these laws over the last, uh, uh, almost, you know, a century, um, that have made it difficult for us to do the work that we do. And then, uh, there are very few workers that we meet with that have that frame of mind immediately, you know, like we have to have an, a, a conversation with them to get them to admit, I think, to themselves that they really have opposing interests from their employers, which in our case are essentially for-profit healthcare companies. Yeah. Um, th- this 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 raises an interesting question about about Google, right? Because you know, the like journalism is a pretty precarious. Uh, profession but you know being being a like a programmer at google at least or you know most of their sort of like official employees uh i think that pays pretty well and and yet you know you're seeing a sort of like a, a movement developing there from people who you know even if they if they uh are highly paid maybe have very little control over their conditions of employment or have to work like 60 or 80 hours a week or whatever. Um, and you know, fall into what you might, what might seem like sort of classic, like Elizabeth Warren type of supporters, you know, like highly educated upper middle class people making lots of money. And yet, you know, are, are, are increasingly maybe to some degree identifying as you know working class um and so you know what what is what is your guys sort of like analysis there like are are these folks just sort of like like narrowly pushing for you know like to to create a little sort of protected you know big tech you know, like the longshoremen in, in San Francisco who make like a hundred thousand bucks or whatever and are all unionized or, or is it maybe a sort of more broadly solidaristics type of uh, situation or is, do do we not know? I mean, I don't know any of them, but I take it more as the, the latter of those. I mean, like, look, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're organizing like a car wash or, uh, you know, uh, or, a, a big tech company, you know, people organize because they care about the thing they do and they think they could make it better. So, you know, like we work with healthcare workers. Some of them make, frankly, a lot of money. Um, money's rarely the issue. Yeah. And so just roughly speaking, honestly, I think Google and their consultants have uh, maybe made a mistake in actually firing all these people. Or it was a big gamble, right? So we rarely see... Um, hospitals fire nurses, for example, because it really pisses off the rest of the nurses. Um, because the, you know, it 
the issue becomes like, look, these people were just trying to do their jobs. Maybe they raised a concern and then this like crazy manager fired them and that fired them and that's not fair. And I think you see a similar pattern um, with these Google folks who have had, you know, at this point, years of sort of increasing activism that's very public. Um, and the people who have been fired are seen as like sticking up for the original mission of a company, you know, the don't be evil thing who are seen as, uh, you know, really wanting to, like, do their jobs well, really wanting their company to be better, and then getting punished for it. Like, even this week, you had another one. Um, and every time that happens, so long as the workers are organized and there's an ability to sort of communicate really clearly with a, a group of sympathetic people, and, like, look, Google's stuck. We all use it. So, like, anytime they, like, have a high-profile firing, everyone's going to know that the thing I use every day, like, is built on something that has at least an element of, like, injustice in it. Um, so, you know, to me, you know, um, that seems like, to to go back to the sort of, like, process of how these things roll out, I would say that's, I, I mean, I that really sucks for the people who got fired and it's not fun to get fired. But to me, that's like a, a misstep on the part of the union busters. They would, um, what happened exactly? <laughs> um, I don't know the full story, but, um, I mean, part of it to get back to your original, oh, question, I know. Oh, you know, yeah, go for it. Go, yeah. Well, I know the last one, um, the one that just got fired this week. Cause I read about it. It's really cool. So, she is a programmer and she took it upon herself. So um, Google had to post a notice saying that they violated labor law. Um, and this is, you know, went through the National Labor Relations Board. I don't know all the details of that, but basically when the employer is required to post this notice, they have to post it um, in places where employees can see it. And they're usually ordered specifically about where to put it. So this programmer took it upon herself, which is also a part of her job, um, to create like essentially a pop-up on everyone's computers <laughs> with, a, you know, attention to this posting. I think um, it was whenever they went to the Union Busters website too, like a little pop-up oh, would right. come that's up that would say like, you have the right to organize, you know, because people were curious because it was in the news, you know. Yeah, so she programmed uh, essentially putting, giving her coworkers notice of their rights, you know, under the National Labor Relations Act. And they, they tried to say, of course, Google tried to say that this was just a, a firing because she abused that pop-up system. But apparently they use that pop-up system to talk to each other all the time about all kinds of things. Their all kinds of things. So, yeah. yeah. So it was clearly discrimination for union activity. And supporting the union. Um, and this particular worker said, like in the last however many years she's worked there, she's her evals have been like literally in the top 2% based on Google's internal system that they use. I believe she was evaluated as superb like two weeks uh, ago. Superb. Yeah. Superb. <laughs> wow. yeah. And it's a good adjective. It, and then it, this followed the, the Thanksgiving four, which were the first four that were fired. I think uh, having to do with activism and protesting, um, having to do with ICE and the fact that Google was having some kind of relationship with ICE and letting them um, potentially use some technology, right? There's something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. 
But yeah, sticking up for things that are broadly seen by a large number of people in the country as just like objectively good things, like the right thing to do. Um, I think the other thing that you've seen in these um, accounts of how they got fired are much more familiar to us in that, you know, um, before they got fired, they got dragged into an office and they got sat down by themselves, like with a manager, probably with one of these consultants and like basically interrogated. Um, which is one of the things that's against the law, um, about their union activity, about who they knew that was like for the union, um, about all the, you know, just like grilling them for hours at a time, which in and of itself is just like, I mean, just imagine it yourself. That's an incredibly intimidating thing to have to go through. Um, you know, in most cases they just sort of leave it at that because the act of, of the interrogation is intimidating enough. And that, you know, while interrogation is one of the things that's against labor law, they're not allowed to do it. They can still put you in a room with a manager or with a union buster for like two hours and make you sit there, uh, which by itself is intimidating. And they can be really careful about what kind of questions they ask so they don't, strictly speaking, break the law. Um, And sometimes they don't really care if they break the law. Um, It sounds like Google and their consultants made the decision that they don't really care. Because that is illegal, right? To fire somebody just for trying to organize a union. Absolutely legal. Absolutely. Yeah. And they, I mean, it, it, like the laws are sort of raggedly enforced at the best of times of the last, the last sort of generation. And now with the, you have the Trump people at the National Labor Relations Board, it's like the, it's open season, right? They're chipping away at the margins of like uh, decades of precedence about, you know, what's a work area, what's not a work area. There's all these like little details that they're trying to like steadily make progress chipping away at. Um, but yeah, your, your fundamental right to engage, not even in forming a union, in collective activity. So like if you, uh, you know, if you work at the Art Museum of Philadelphia and you, other, you and the other curators are like, we're going to write a letter together to tell our boss about something we don't like. They cannot punish you for doing that. That's what the law says. Yeah. Right. And they can, they can break the law in doing so. I mean, there is illegal activity that's done all the time. Right. And, but I think it's important to understand um, how, as you just suggested, it really matters the politics of the state and like the electoral politics that affect the, the small minutia, like the laws that we don't even think about or know about. Right. Whether it has to do with the NLRB or otherwise, because that can really hamstring the non-electoral work that, that organizers like you are doing. So I think it's uh, like a false dichotomy when we talk about electoral politics or non-electoral politics. You can't really they're inextricable. Right. Like It, it really matters. But it's and it certainly helps if people are paying attention. You know, yeah. um, I'd say where we've seen anti-union campaigns be the most vicious is where there is like zero. Uh, attention and spotlight that's going to be shown upon them. And those are predictably in like low wage, uh, low wage work that's mostly being done by like women and and people of color. Um, You know, in the places where I've organized that are dominated by those sorts of workers, the bosses are much more vicious. They fire people more easily. They don't care if they break the law. Um, In places where we're able to uh, show that there's political support for the workers who want to organize, um, you know, it tends to, at the very least, back the union busters off from doing the worst of the worst stuff, you know. Um, so, like, kudos to these Google workers for continuing to uh, shine national attention on what's happening there. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, on the on the broader question of big tech, right? Like this this would seem, you know, if if I were sort of considering, you know, sort of strategic sectors of the economy that I would want to prioritize organizing first, like that would definitely be one of them. That like transportation and so on, but like like control over sort of like the means of information production, so to speak. I mean, the right. server maintenance workers uh, <laughs> would be. <laughs> But possibly powerful. the largest yeah. but yeah, right talk about a choke point yeah you're seeing right you're seeing the you know so i think so you know some glimmerings there but like at the same time you know facebook is sort of being turned into like fox news in front of our eyes you know like they partnered with uh like like fucking breitbart i think or the mm-hmm. weekly standard is one of their fact-checking or- organizations yeah. oh really yeah, oh, yeah. it's that. it's rough yeah and, and like zuckerberg is like increasingly just like like overt fascist sympathies meeting with uh you know trump it's and the caesar haircut he can't help it <laughs> yeah i mean these these are like profound i mean peter thiel who is literally written for the cato institute about why democracy is bad why giving women the vote is bad like he's a key figure of facebook openly fascist I would literal say. vampire yeah <laughs> um and yet you know you you look at this you know sort of sort of you know, t- turning the brains of of everyone over 65 along with fox news in the country to mush oh me too man i'm only 36 (laughs) all of us i mean i haven't logged into facebook in like six months but um yeah my i've got twitter brain poisoning which is probably worse Uh, definitely worse but but at any rate you know you you have like like at least nominally progressive at least people who don't they're not peter thiel and even if they're like sort of Hillary Clinton, you know, uh, 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 liberals, mm-hmm. then they're not going to be on board with like, uh, let you know, well, we had to enable a genocide in Sri Lanka because like uh, it would be inconvenient to not do to, to stop that somehow. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like. Have 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 you all seen any, you know, uh, movement in that direction, like both in terms of organizing or like ideological sort of sort of work to say that like listen this is a company and like it should be run in a responsible way not just for like making a like 10 people insanely rich no matter the consequences um you see anything like that i mean i think so i mean uh i think nella knows a little more about it i would you know i you know I would just say, like, you know, we heard, like, 10 years ago, it was just like, oh, we're in this new Gilded Age. You know, the the analogy is, like, the 1880s or 1890s. And, you know, if that's broadly, like, you know, holds up, then, like, all right, so they're, like, the standard oils and, like, you know, all these people who were, like, real bad. And then people fought back for a little while. And then they got a little less bad. You know, so I think, if anything, we're, like, closer to the moment where people are, like, oh, yeah, they're real bad. We need to start fighting back against them. Yeah, you know, and I do think we're seeing more and more of that. Um, Kickstarter is another example, you know, where it was a platform that was used to, I mean, it still is used to raise funds for good projects that couldn't get funding from, you know, the richer sources. And when those workers started to organize the employers, I think they're still fighting them. Uh, they certainly didn't recognize the union. Um, and I forget what the conflict, like what kind of spawned 
um, what kickstarted <laughs> the effort. Um, but I think it was, I don't know if you guys know. I'm not sure, but it's, it's a sign that, you know, uh, the people who work at these places, I mean, cause also it's like the, the bubble of the tech boom is like, or this iteration of the tech boom is like very much like burst, you know? So yeah. the, like the idea yeah. that if you just like stick it out, you'll be okay, I think is like less viable for people. And so they're joining the rest of like, you know, the, this millennial generation that, you know, even if, and specifically for tech workers, they probably went to school, they might have a graduate degree, did everything like, uh, did everything right under the terms of like, you know, sort of like neoliberal education and progress. Mm -hmm. And they're like, all of a sudden looking at a precipice where it's just like, oh, uh, you know, I've been writing code for WeWork for five years yeah. and like, you know, uh, doing keg stands at 11 AM and thinking life was great. Maybe not allegedly. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, all of a sudden that just like went off in a puff of, uh, of, of imagination, you know, and yeah. that, that probably feels pretty crappy, you know? And so if, if yeah. you can do something about that, why not do something about it? I think at the core of it, there's there's like a clash of values, you know, like clearly it's happening at Google, it's happened at Kickstarter and a bunch of other places. And uh, with healthcare workers, like we we're helping nurses who are literally doing their best to save lives of people who walk through the doors of the hospital and are like waiting for hours to be seen in the emergency room. Uh, they have like three, four critical ICU patients when ordinarily you really should only be taking care of one patient. Um, and so their values are like, oh, I went into the nursing profession to take care of people um, and to help save lives. And then um, you have the really like the corporate bottom line which is what's our largest expense? Oh, it's labor. Um, how can we cut that down like more and more and more um, at the detriment of patient care, right? Like how it's just worth it to them to keep going, you know? And then they're like in all the campaigns that we've had, the nurses collectively uh, end up reaching a point where the clash is just too big and they're like they're ready and and increasingly also like you've seen more and more uh people in hospital management who have like mbas rather than come from uh the medical professions and it's like they can't even help themselves right yeah. like if they're looking at a spreadsheet that says i'm going to generate more money for the shareholders or more or higher executive salaries it's my duty to do that um, and because maybe, maybe because they don't actually have any experience doing the actual work, um, you know, those are just numbers on a spreadsheet to them. And so like, if that means that, you know, like a nurse is going to have a really bad night, that's going to like make them like cry in their car, uh, before they even leave the parking lot, like they don't care. No, you know, it, they don't even think about it. And, you know, the they, thing that we see is that they're not even forced to acknowledge that it's something that they might have to think about until the nurses take collective action. Because it's not like the, it's not like 
the problems that they're facing are the first time they're bringing them up. Like every single time we talk to one of especially healthcare workers, it's a natural question. Like, oh, have you tried to address, you know, uh, the, the staffing problems before? And like, of course they have. Yeah. Like, of course they've like talked to their manager. They've tried to do all these things. And the fact is they don't have the power to fix that by themselves. Right. And yet isn't one of the problems that management says, you don't need to unionize. We'll work with you. We'll figure things out. Oh, yeah. The door is always open. You know, you just need to talk to me. Like, I'll I'll fix your problem, which is kind of great. This is the first time that we've heard this. This is the first I'm hearing of this. (laughs) Give us a chance. Which to go back to like your your question about the the sequence of an anti-union campaign, because I don't want to like not just like hit some of these points because they're just like it's so crazy and nobody knows about it like yeah. literally yeah, it's, people it, and it's universal right like it's exactly it's the, the same, same every single time so like the the union busters come in sometimes they do it themselves sometimes they train the managers but the first thing they do is they go to all the workers and say like oh we had no idea it was this bad like oh like this is a communication problem you just need to come talk to us um, because like, really this is like, we just need to know what the issues are so we can fix them because we're the powerful ones and we, we should do that. Um, and like, yeah, well, actually, uh, um, on a campaign that I worked on last year in Massachusetts, they, uh, the start of their anti-union campaign was bringing in this consultant, which was like stage one of union busting. And it was to basically like create a hospital wide committee to hear people's concerns, which were then going to be reported back to hospital administration. But in fact, what it was, was getting people's issues and preparing like documentation um, to give over to the union busters so that the union busters could plan their campaign better. (laughs) tricky devils so so yes that's step one is like oh we're listening to you we didn't know it was so bad we're gonna fix it now and sometimes they do and usually at that point they'll also try to like bribe people somehow by either giving them a raise uh for the graduate students at upenn uh it was a free gym membership oh yeah oh yeah big time which they uh were funding by increased fees on master's students it's a place with a 10 billion dollar endowment um, but you know, it's, it's some combination of like, you know, uh, we can work it out and here's some stuff. Um, the second part of that is, um, you know, uh, uh, a series of aggressive, um, like meetings, like the, the, their word for it is captive audience meetings. So yeah. if you look at their promotional materials that they use to sell their services to employees, they'll say like, oh, you know, we recommend doing a minimum of 17 captive audience meetings to ensure a successful uh, no vote on unionization. And what that means is that like, you know, the managers tell all the employees, oh, there's a mandatory meeting. They put them all in an in a auditorium and then there's either a manager or a union buster in front who starts, you know, given a speech sometimes they they say that they're from like the labor institute or something yeah um, or they like pretend to be some sort of official labory person you know um like i've seen this at jobs i've had where like there was some hr guy who's like oh you know we know that like you know back in the 30s when there was child labor they were like you really needed unions but you know what now we've got osha and there's all these great laws. And so we're really committed 
uh, as managers to support you. And we're going to be a union free environment. And like everyone's there on the first day of the job with some guy who's like obviously in charge telling them this, like the message is, is quite clear, you know? Um, but I would say the, you know, uh, the fundamental thing, whether it's a captive audience meeting, whether it's a one-on-one meeting, whether it's a flyer that you're getting, whether it's a voicemail that your boss is leaving on your phone, whether it's a packet of information that's been mailed to your house, whatever it is. And there's lots of different tactics. Chief, uh, chief nursing officer walking around in scrubs, like for the first time ever Mm -hmm. through the hospital, (laughs) usually crying. Yeah. um, How could you do this to me? Yeah. Um, yeah, like whatever they got to do. If like, look, if you're gonna form a union, you're gonna see your manager more than you ever saw him before. Like, yeah, I said my advice is is like soak it up. Tell him you want a pizza. You know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what do you got? What do you got? Um, but the like the real message that they always send with this, whether they're talking like Nella was saying before about dues or strikes or all these scary things, the narrative that they're pushing is that the union is like. Uh, some third party entity that's coming in to get between you and management. So their first move is like the olive branch, which is like, let management solve your problems. Don't let this like alien thing come between you and management. And this is well, based- family talk comes back. Oh, you know, yeah. it's like, we're a family. We have been a family, 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 family. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and you know, when you have the family, which is so creepy. And then you have the union. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like an outsider uh, coming in and messing with the family. By the way, just pro, pro tip for everyone working anywhere. Don't let the family talk pervade the workplace. It's bullshit. It's not your family. They have power over you. And also family members often have power over you. But but in, in this case, there is no binding love that of sacrifice that is underlying the relationship to you. The but, only similarity is that just like, you know, getting late in the day on a major holiday, you might want to leave your family just like you might want to leave your job late in the day. <laughs> um, but like, look, I mean, like part of our assumption as organizers, because it's true, is that the only reason the union has power is because it is the workers standing together. So, you know, like I'm far from the first person to say that the workers are the union. Everything that the boss and the union busters say is based on this fundamental lie that the union is something other than the workers. So when they say, oh, uh, you're going to have to pay dues, it's not that you're going to have to pay dues. It's like the union is going to make you pay dues or the union is going to make you go on strike or these union bosses are going to like do all this stuff that you don't like. When fundamentally, the union is nothing but you and your colleagues making a decision. Um, And so what they're trying to do is create a a set of conditions where you believe that that's not true, that the union is not you, that the union is not a fundamentally uh, democratic process to change things in your life, about your uh, about your job and in your community. Um, And that's really that's really the lie. And what makes it so effective is that it's like fucking scary. You know, yeah. um, so so is that the thir- is that the third thing? So first, oh, I'm sorry, it's a communication issue. Uh, we should have communicated. I didn't know about these problems. Second, we're here all the time for you. Look at look at all these meetings. Let's talk about it. We don't need anyone else. Three, look at this interloper, these union, this union thing that's getting in the way. Is that kind of the progression? Or yeah, and then total terror. 
like sheer abject nonstop. Maybe not. Maybe terror is too strong, but just like anxiety, like a a, a feeling conflict, like manufactured conflict, right? Yeah. Like the, their ba- their basic goal, and especially uh, where Max and I work, nurses don't tend to get fired during union organizing campaigns. It's probably for a few reason reasons. It's a pretty big deal to fire someone with a license. Um, we'd probably win. It would backfire on them regardless. It doesn't usually happen. Um, so their strategy really becomes to create an atmosphere that is so tense and so uncomfortable, um, that, and totally associated with the union, right? So that people end up being so stressed out by the end that like their feeling is like, I just want this to be over. I can see how that would be especially hard to combat when coupled with the nothing's guaranteed. Who knows what's going to happen? So mm-hmm. if it's like, well, I agree that it would be great if we could do X, Y, Z, but that's not guaranteed. Who knows what's going to happen? Meanwhile, I know I'm really uncomfortable right now. Yeah. Right? All and- I know is that my relationship with my manager has never been worse. Uh, this and that we might go on strike, nothing's guaranteed. And like every day, like a barrage of emails, you have the last campaign that Max and I worked on, there were union busters in the hospital physically there every day. Um, like three or four of them, uh, posted in nurses, break rooms, making them watch videos, just, they were there constantly. Ultimately it backfired on them at least a little bit because, you know, you take nurses away from their patients and they already don't have enough time with their patients. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the pressure is just, uh, it's really, really intense. But, 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 How do you combat that? Well, I mean, just to, just to like really fill it out, like, let's say like you could, you could do it as a hospital thing. Like a nurse will be like doing her job with a patient, putting in an IV, like doing one of the million things that nurses do for patients. Her manager comes in and says, like, uh, you need to go to the break room right now and talk to this guy. And she's like, uh, I'm, like, doing something. And the manager's just like, I'll take over. Just go immediately. And they'll say, like, uh, I prefer not to. And the manager's like, no, you need to go. Um, and then they go. And then they're sitting in a room with some weird guy for, like, two hours. Uh, some of whom make, you know, the stories are insane. Like, the, the, these guys are also just, like, goons. Yeah. Like they're like bad uh like like you know Sopranos extras. Um yeah. I wish, man. Like uh, the Pinkertons at least like wore suits. I like these guys are like <laughs> they're like like they run out of small talk to make so they start bragging about their CBD businesses. Uh one guy started talking about like porn like with a bunch of nurses. You know, just like gross stuff. Sounds um, like uh, $3,000 a day, well spent. Well spent, you know. Um, but you have to go. Like, you have to go and you have to go sit through this thing. And, like, if you don't have a strong network of people who are, like, there to support you while you're doing that, um, you know, it's, like, I would give up too. I'd just be like, you know what, this isn't worth it. And what it really yeah. does is, like, cut off all the tools that workers use to organize, which are, like, communication, building relationships across different departments. Because what happens, and we would hear this from like pro-union nurses who would go to like anti-union departments, 
who are like, you know, they're proud. They're wearing a union button. They're like on a flyer somewhere. Everyone knows they're pro-union. Nothing's going to happen to them because they know they're protected. And part of what we do is educate nurses on like what's going to happen. And like when it happens to people who know what's going to happen, it doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Like they're like, I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to do that. Like, I'm not afraid of you. Like, I know what you're up to, you know? At so, best, so they that's like, the inoculation. That's that's how you inoculate them. Yeah. You tell them exactly what they're going to hear, and they're prepared. And then it doesn't and what work. they're going to do. So so it's going to be like, all oh, right, you guys are going to get a raise, like that market adjustment that they've been holding back. Uh, once they think that union talk is real, they're going to implement that, right? Like, so you're going to get that. Um, they might fire a manager that people really don't like. Like, so they're going to like they're going to do things. They're going to say things, and they're going to do things. Um, and, and because they do know, the same things every time, you know, yeah. you build trust with these people who like don't really know you and are doing something that's yeah, like that's yeah. scary. But when you're like, they're going to do X, Y and Z and they do X, Y and Z yeah. like and they always do X, Y and Z. It's just right. like, you know, when like but you need to have that conversation before the anti-union campaign yeah, starts. Yeah, yeah. So part yeah. of it is like a because it's. Part of it is like a dance of like how uh, how well you can inoculate a majority of the workers on what's going to happen because that's part of how they're going to get through it together. Because uh, if you yeah. don't, like the fear sets in and like people, you know, like see these like pro-union people and they're like, hey, how you doing? And they just, they like they would tell us these like these people who hadn't been able been prepared for that would like start looking around like looking over their shoulder to see who's talking to them because they're afraid, you know? Yeah. Um, and even though they have the f every right to do what they're doing, even though they have like, you know, dozens of colleagues sticking up for them in, in them, the feeling that they have when they're thinking about this thing is not like, Oh, you know, we just got to stick together and work it out because these goons are going to be gone. The minute we like win the election and start bargaining our contract, it's like every time, yeah, every single time, you know, it, if they don't feel like that, they're like, oh, my life is going to be like absolutely ruined if I talk to my coworker about like making my life a little bit better. And the fear is really, really real. And that's like not a comfortable feeling. And no one wants to like live there all day. But unfortunately, what people do if they're not prepared is just like shut the entire thing down, you know? Yeah, but I just keep my head down and. And, uh, you know, just hope for the best, then, you know, maybe well, things will just sort of like keep ticking over. Um, yeah, I mean, it's understandable. The, the catch is that people will say things like, I'll vote yes in the election, or I'm going to be silently supportive. And our biggest job, the task at hand is we know that there is no such thing as silent support in a union campaign. You can't count on it. It's not real. If someone's not willing to do things somewhat publicly to support their coworkers, especially once there's a majority, um, you can't count on their vote. You can't count on their support. So it really is about walking a whole lot of people through really intense manufactured fear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just, uh, I just have maybe to switch gears slightly. One, uh, one more question I wanted to ask, which is about nonprofits, right? Because uh, hospitals are, you know, very often nonprofits, but nonprofits in a kind of weird way. 
in which like you have, uh, you know, often an executive staff was just absolutely larded up with people making bank. Um, I was just looking up the uh, St. Jude's Children Hospital, which is a nonprofit, and they've just been just giving me all these maudlin ads on YouTube. And uh, it turns out that less than half of the donation dollars to St. Jude actually go to the hospital itself. And both uh. both the fundraising arm of the St. Jude's operation and St. Jude's itself both have CEOs making like over a million dollars. Um, can I can I read you a quick uh, thing? Uh, I got this. Please. There's a children's hospital in Philadelphia. Oh yeah. Uh, the CEO of this company, her name's Madeline Bell. She made uh, two million dollars in 2016. Uh, they recently did an employee engagement survey to try to see what the issues were uh, for the <laughs> workers in the hospital. Go wonder. It started. Yeah. It started a couple weeks after the nurses at the hospital nearby voted to unionize. Go figure. Um, you know, so she goes on about basically some positive stuff about how people like working at their jobs. And she starts going into the places where people need to improve. Uh, the first thing is people feel like it's hard to disconnect from their job. Uh, the second part, I just want to read verbatim. And remember, this woman makes $2 million a year at least. And that was years ago. Uh, this is, this is her. Uh, another area we will work to learn more about is quote, pay perceptions. Unquote. All we know for sure right now is that some employees have unfavorable perceptions of our pay practices. We need to dig deeper to find out why. Stay tuned for more on this topic. Uh, this is Love a it. this is a CEO of a nonprofit, major, prestigious hospital who has just been told by seventy five percent of her employees uh, our pay sucks, and her response is, "Your wow. perception of." Your pay is the problem. That's well, the yeah. problem. That's we, right. We need to do something <laughs> about this. They're, they're going to look into it. Yeah. You, you, they're going to get to the bottom of this perception problem. Yeah. yeah. We it's will just, fix you like ha- being worried about this. <laughs> Stay tuned. It's, it's just like how divisive it is to bring up race and inequality. It's, it's really the conversation that's the problem. That's what really makes people uncomfortable. It's not the actual inequality and oppression that people suffer every day that's the problem. It's the right. perception. Yeah. The perception I, and the discussion that's the issue. Yeah, I was uh, you know? uh, an, another uh, another data point here just real quickly. Uh, I was just reading about the effort to local uh, or unionize the local uh, public radio station, WHYY, mm-hmm. which is, from what I can tell, basically supported entirely by Terry Gross. Like she is, the, she is, Terry. yeah. The, the, that makes me so happy to hear. Now I don't have to feel any guilt listening to fresh air. I was so scared she was the no vote. <laughs> no, I, 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 I think she, she. Wait, she didn't get a vote. No, there was one no vote. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. But, but I was just like, did, don't let it vote, be Terry. Right? Uh, no, I guess she's probably a manager. I don't know. Yeah. I think she's, well. I'm not sure about that, but I think she makes about a quarter million. But the head of the uh, the head of WHYY, according to this uh, article I was reading, makes all, uh, three quarters of a million. Mm. And you know, there's a lot of just like regular producers and reporters and stuff who are you know making, you know, I'm sure like forty, fifty, sixty thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question I always have in situations like that uh, is. 
how fucking hard can it be to run a public radio station? Like, I bet it just basically runs itself. And especially in the case of hospitals, like, okay, I bet that's kind of complicated. How much harder it is than being like a surgeon or a nurse? Oh, you know, where you're you're making like, you know, uh, 150,000 or something, or, you know, uh, maybe even, uh, significantly more than that. But I think nurses make like 70,000. But these are like highly trained people doing very difficult, mm-hmm. complicated shit. And, and you're telling me that, like, oh, the, that we have to have this person in, you know, at the top making $2 million. Well, he really knows how to work an Excel spreadsheet. So, you know, it's like, it's yeah. hard to find that kind of talent. And that, I think, it, d- it tends to demonstrate the, uh, you know, the underlying reality, which is that it's working like the whole logic of the regular capitalist business has penetrated, you know, into the top layers of this management where people are just taking what they can get. Like they're rigging the whole enterprise to like suck as much money out of it as possible. And it's like ca- camouflaging it with rhetoric about service and perception. Yeah. Uh, on that note, I want to make a plug for this amazing article that came out in late November called Progressives in the Streets, Union Busters in the Sheets. Um, I have like sent this article to pretty much everybody I know, but it's a really, really thorough, really good look at the first, the organizing that's been happening in the nonprofit sector, like just in the last year or so. Um, and then the employer response to it. And what I love about it, it, like it keeps going. And then at the end, it's like also talking about the nonprofit industrial complex, you know, and like what a sham a lot of like the work of that sector is um, not necessarily like placing blame on like any particular person or organization like it is what it is like they also operate in this like fucked up system where, you know, they're competing for money. Um, and then, you know, she says in the article, the author, her name is, um, what is her name? Marianne, uh, Marianne Garneau, you know, it's like a boss is a boss is a boss. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. And And I think we'll we'll link to that. Go ahead. Well, I, I also think, you know, we see the same thing in hospitals where, you know, you'll, at least in a Catholic sort of hospital, they might say like, oh, you know, this hospital used to be run by a a doctor and a nurse. You know, they were the only managers in the place 30 years ago. It's not dissimilar from, you know, an academic situation where, uh, you know, the department chair was just on a rotational basis among the faculty because it was like, yeah, you know what? Someone's just got to like call the meeting and do this thing that's kind of like an administrative chore, but isn't particularly important. Um, and like, who would want to do that long term anyway? Which is morphed no, into no, like. No, trust me, we 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 still don't want to be chair. Nobody wants to be chair. <laughs> Good for all of you, but there are people who want to be academic administrators. So like, why are, what? And there's people who want to be hospital administrators and nonprofit administrators. And so, the question for me is, you know, in a kind of abstract sense, like one of like class formation, like what is this like group of people that emerged? who are like, my place is to be a manager of something. And maybe I think I'm a nice person, so I'm going to be a manager in a nonprofit place. But I also have this expectation of my life because I went to school and I'm smart that, you know, I should be paid a lot of money. And where is that going to be? You know, and what does that do to the actual places where I'm now the manager of? Uh, And so when you see this administrative bloat and all these like, sectors of the economy 
you know, I see uh, an absolutely rotten, like, you know, educational system that is just producing people with an expectation of, uh, of some sort of lifestyle. And these are like literally the only jobs they can get. I don't know, but like they keep going into them. Like we keep giving them jobs to, to, we keep creating, uh, employment opportunity. Yeah. Bullshit jobs for these people. And they're like really highly paid. And so when you have, you know, 4,000 adjuncts at some community college system saying like, hi, I'd like to not live in my car. And they're like, oh, I can't because we have to pay the dean of, uh, you know. Um, engagement. Of whatever engagement, enough money to have, you know, two assistants to produce four reports a year that no one's going to read. Like that's literally their answer, you know. Yeah. Um, Building a, a gym that's like 350,000 square feet. You know, with with enough enough uh, facilities in it to train an entire Olympiads worth of uh, athletes. The, my favorite one I ever heard was apparently Yale University said that they couldn't like, you know, uh, improve the healthcare coverage for graduate students. <laughs> like they couldn't dip into their like seventeen billion dollar reserve. Because uh, in the event of like nuclear catastrophe, they needed to rebuild Yale. And yeah. so that's what they needed the money for. <laughs> I mean, it makes total sense. You know, if if I'm going to rebuild society, the fr- I would definitely want to preserve the Ivy League at all costs. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, <laughs> Penn, etc. Like, that's really the core of what's good about America. Those places. Oh, sure. I mean, the, the really twisted thing I see about it is like, like, all these people like get these like big management jobs, but there's they're like working like 60 hours a week and they're all freaking miserable, you know? Um, yeah. Like the thing I don't understand, like at least the people that we tend to organize, like they work with their hands, they talk to people, they love their jobs, you know? Yeah. And I'd get genuine fulfillment out of them. Like as someone who occasionally has to work with a spreadsheet, like I hate sitting and looking at a computer all day. Like the idea that like that's all that this like new, you know, class of like nonprofit management types wants to do with themselves is so sad. Like it's just depressing. You would think. No, I mean. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Ryan. Well, I, you know, I, I was uh, just considering, you know, there, Mayor Pete had that that thing about how, well, Medicare for all is is bad because you're going to put everybody out of work in the private insurance, uh, you know, I think industry. Yang just said it too. Yeah, and and like that's a problem, of course. You know, maybe you know you have like a number of people who'd lose their income. Got to do something about that. That is in the Medicare for all legislation. Mm-hmm. There's a whole big adjustment package. But like, I think one of the reasons why the, those type of jobs are so soul crushing is because people really know at the end of the day, like unless they've really indoctrinated themselves, that those jobs are fucking pointless or worse. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you're just denying people's claims or, you know, just pushing paper around in a circle, you know, and, and just wasting tons of resources and money. And like, it would just be better off for everyone if you had a, a much more streamlined system that spent 10% on administration instead of 25%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's got to sort of weigh on you after a while, I would think. Maybe, and, but the, the other thing is that like the rest of the economy, despite like our record low employment, unemployment numbers or whatever, like also sucks. 
Like if you yeah. spent 10 years working in a recycling plant and then you like, you know, worked as a, you know, a nursing assistant, which basically means like dealing with like bodies and all the stuff they do, you know, uh, getting a job that pays like 15, 16 bucks an hour as a medical coder is a step up, you know? Sure. Um, and so, so it, it's so not just why, like that. Yeah. Dis- it's like, it's despair all the way down, man. Yeah. No, no. And here's, here's the thing. And I've been thinking about this really like throughout the whole conversation because, you know, I, I think big picture stuff and from the tactics of the union busters, which is all about dividing people and, and about fear and the opposite of solidarity and, and all the things that connect us and, and, are required for, for true leftist progress politically uh, at every level, right? Like, I keep thinking about how even the successes, right? The fact that, you know, uh, it sucks that you have to organize at one site versus another, you know, rather than sectorally. But, like, it's so easy for the powers that be to pit people against each other, even in their victories, right? So that, like, you know, you, you hear about... Um, you know, our unions going to be for Medicare for all because don't they value the, those things that they already bargained for and their their particular plans are really great. And this union is going to be pitted against that union and, and you're going to pit people against each other. I wonder in your encounters with people how much consciousness raising is a part of what you see happening. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about what just happened across the pond. I'm thinking about like a lot of people who as important as it is for them to fight the authoritarian private government that is their particular business, right? Uh, are they also understanding the battles that all workers are going through and trying to think about their connection politically to everyone else? Because unless we start doing that, we're in a whole lot of trouble, no, no matter how many battles we win one institution at a time. Mm. <laughs> you know... Uh, this last campaign that Max and I worked on, it was a hospital in the middle of Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Um, I didn't find out until, I mean, I knew that we had, uh, politically conservative people that were part of our bargaining committee. And for us, even when we're training other people, like, who are you going to approach to talk about the union or who's a real leader in the work, the workplace? Like, we're not, you're not like looking for union activists. You're looking for like the well-respected leaders in each work area. Um, and a lot of these leaders are Republican, um, including like Trumpers, like self-proclaimed Trumpers. Um, and it's been really a cool experience for me to see just during the course of this campaign, like who were the politicians that stood with us at our press conference in July, you know? Like, and they got to see it like firsthand. It's like, oh, I, I used to think that this, like, you know, liberal Democrat was, like, Looney Tunes, but you know what? Like, she stood with us, like, and she helped us. Um, and, you know, speaking of Trump and the NLRA, um, some pretty shitty rules came out on last Friday, like, not even a week ago, that's extending the election timeline so this group of workers who like are intimately familiar now with the process, right? Like this like fairly obscure process Ooh. of like what it takes to get a union election. And they know the shit that they had to go through like in the last few mm. weeks before they got to vote. Like, oh, now like imagine waiting two months to vote mm. like in that type of atmosphere. Mm. Like uh, they're going to be transformed, you know, like they're already like 
having their transformation and like internal feelings about it. Um, and in some places, like, uh, you know, in some ways we're like outsiders, right? Like we don't live, I don't live in Bucks County. Like I live in Jersey now. Um, I, I just kind of like imagine what their perception of me is like when they first meet me, um, uh, just like demographically that I'm different from them. And then we develop really close relationships in a campaign. And I like, there's just like growth on both sides, you know, like for me and for the workers that we work awesome. with. Um, nice. And yeah, I think you just like my take on it is, you really got to let each person have their own process. Um, and from our end, like we have to be clear on our values and what are, and, and like, what are the values of the, of the union? Like, and the values of the union have to be like the collective values of the collective group of the workers. And they're only going to be as developed as the workers are developed, mm. which is really awesome when you have a group of workers that had to go through a fight, right? Versus like a union member who came into an organized shop that's been union for like 30 years. Like that mm. person's like worker consciousness is totally different right. from someone who experienced it firsthand. It's a great point. Yeah. And so, you know, like we don't really talk about our personal politics in an organizing drive because we're not there yeah. to talk about ourselves, you know, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And at the end of the day, they don't really care that much, you know, because they want to fix things where they work and we're, you know, uh, there to help them do that. Right. And help them figure out how to do that for themselves. And they're like way into that, you know, and they think that's great. Um, you know, long term, I would love to see, you know, um, well, long term, those people are going to like believe in a politics that assists them in doing that and helps other people do that because they see it as a, a real way to make the world better. So, you know, part of what's so exciting about this recent uh, rise in union organizing is that it's gone concurrently with a rise of like new sort of progressive and radical uh, pro labor um, politicians who are like unafraid to say we're going to support workers you know i don't know if it's going to happen today or tomorrow but i can't imagine that like uh there's not going to be a certain amount of synergy between those things because like you know like nella said people who go through this experience it's a transformative thing in their life um and they're never going to forget it and you know that's a big difference from someone you know making a bunch of policy points that like mostly wash over their head like they're going to think about the thing that like they feel really strongly emotionally about. And like, I think it'd be great to make that a, if the thing they feel strongly emotionally about is making a positive change in their environment in a real way, like great. That would be awesome. <laughs> like yeah. if we can do more of that, that would be great. Yeah. And you know, Bernie's talking about the, the Google stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not sure if, if Warren has done so. I, I, I think so. She's definitely talked about. She's certainly way to to Obama's left in terms I mean, of her rhetoric. They all refused to sign, to cross the picket line at like what it was at LSU, and you know yeah. what? They got a TA. Like <laughs> they got an agreement. Like that was a huge deal. That was awesome, and that would be unthinkable uh, even in the last presidential election cycle. Like they all and, refused. And what's TA? Oh, TA. Uh, sorry, a, a tentative agreement. 
they got a deal. Like they were in negotiation. The workers at wherever they were going to do the debate were in negotiations. Uh, they were going to do some action, which put pressure on the candidates, the Democratic candidates, uh, that they would have had to cross a picket line to go participate in that debate. Um, and one by one, they all refused to do it because none of them were going to be caught being the one yeah. who was going to do it, uh, which brought national attention onto, uh, you know, onto this group of workers who I think were like, you know, uh, catering workers fighting Sodexo, <laughs> who like are awful. Yeah. Um, and that's great because what it means is that, you know, they got uh, a contract, which, you know, uh, I am assuming uh, includes some like real concrete improvements in their life. Um, and that's uh, a set of circumstances which like wouldn't have happened four years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And none of that happens without a, those workers like believing in one another enough to like fight together to make their lives better and be a set of politicians who are recognizing this like increasing wave of worker militancy and saying like, we're going to look really bad if yeah. we don't at the very least support them in like the easiest possible way by like not crossing their picket line. So yeah, more of that. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. Um, unless you guys have any last comments. Um, great. Well, um, Max Lyons and, uh, Nella Hadzik, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, and good yeah, luck with all these various uh, union drives and, you know, we'll all be, uh, uh, sending up solidarity prayers and so on and taking these uh, lessons to home uh, to heart as, as as they may be useful in our own lives. Well, thanks for having us on. Yeah. And yeah, we hope we're real busy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like maybe Max, you're going to have a conversation now offline. <laughs> Uh, I think oh, yeah. so. You've got some, uh, yeah. got some organizing to do with, uh, yeah, got some organizing to do constantly, you know, cool. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you for all you do. Thank you so much. Um, you know, we, we appreciate you and, and are, are really grateful for all the lives you're changing and all, all the fighting you're doing. Thanks for Thanks letting again. us be on a podcast. We never did it before. <laughs> I know it's my first time. <laughs> right on. Cool. All right, okay. everybody. Bye. Bye. See you.